Welcome to the Index Podcast, hosted by Alex Kahaya. Plug in as we explore new frontiers with Web3 and the decentralized future. Hey, everyone, and welcome to The Index, brought to you by The Graph, where we talk with the entrepreneurs building the next wave of the internet. I'm your host, Alex Cahaya, and this week on The Index, I'm excited to welcome Justin Bannon, co-founder of Boson Protocol, a crypto-native commerce protocol that enables the decentralized exchange of anything. We will explore the exciting possibilities of Web3 commerce, the potential of NFTs as tangible products, and the emerging role of brands in the metaverse. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Alex. Great to be here. For people who don't know about Boson and your personal journey, like how did you get to here? What have you done in your career to get to this point where you started Boson? I used to head up a company or group of companies called Collinson Travel Experiences, and they had a, a number of brands, including one that was called like Priority Pass, which was basically when I started was just creating like these like paper and plastic vouchers for basically like airport lounge visits. Quite early on, I, I did a master's in digital and I thought, what happens if you, if you digitize these vouchers and create like digital vouchers? And anyway, that turned out to be quite a good idea because I ended up scaling that, did a whole digital transformation of that business and scaled that business from about 50 million to about a billion dollar per annum revenue selling like not just lounge visits but things all across this kind of travel space digitized about digital vouchers that plugged into amex mastercard visa and sort of get as benefits for their card holders and lots of other sectors as well and so having gone from like paper and plastic to digital and i'd sort of done a master's in digital and i started I kind of really got into this whole blockchain and I'd previously done like physics undergrad. So everything I sort of saw business models as like this kind of physics of business, if you like. So really kind of went down that crypto rabbit hole and thought, well, what happens if you now go from paper and plastic to digital to blockchain? What would these blockchain vouchers look like? What I realized was they would have to have very different properties to the digital vouchers, right? Digital vouchers are like, just like, okay, if you hold one, then if the issuer agrees to it, they'll give you the physical thing. But in blockchain, we've got this higher level of of claims, right? So if you've got a Bitcoin, you don't have to go and ask Satoshi, you know, please, Satoshi, will you kind of honor this? Or please, HSBC, you know, it's, it's strong, credible guarantees on the underlying value. And so these vouchers would need to be the same, right? If you held one, Either you got the item or your money back so that it was kind of like trust minimized. So I sort of looked around to see whether there was a solution or a protocol in place to, that we could build a, an a application on top of. And there wasn't. And not only wasn't there, it was a fundamental question. And a lot of people thought it was actually impossible to do. So it seemed like a good idea might be to walk away and find an easier problem. But we didn't. So what about this problem did they think was impossible? Like, can you dive into the objection there? What were you trying to do? And, and why did people think this wasn't going to happen? Well, there'd been quite a bit of sort of academic work on it and quite a bit, you know, the problem is, it's this kind of whole fair exchange problem. So it's actually more fundamental than just kind of creating a voucher for a physical. It's The problem is how to enable the fair exchange of 
you know, a physical asset for monetary payment without needing to trust the seller or the, you know, buyer-seller or intermediary. In economics, it's called this kind of fair exchange problem. And there have been no sort of workable implementation of that in blockchain. And so the way we went about solving it, we did V1, which is an initial prototype that kind of proved feasibility, really. And then we raised a bunch of money, you know, off the back of this first version and then basically hired the best team on the planet to design and build it and, you know, completely tore up the original design and rebuilt it with so the protocol design is one of the core ethereum foundation protocol designers for ethereum he just happened to have written an academic paper on a very similar mechanism all the kind of techno legal aspects of it are designed by a team of lawyers who specialize in blockchain and dispute resolutions or led by dr primo de Filippi, who wrote blockchain and the law teaches at harvard it ended up it wasn't an impossible problem it just required like some of the best people in the space and we managed to assemble them to kind of yeah redesign the whole thing for v2 and then deployed v2 at the end of last year and have just last week come out of closed beta and into open access in terms of like you know at now anyone can kind of come and sell on boson protocol so it's been quite a long journey and can you walk us through how did the protocol work? How was it designed for V1 versus V2? And kind of just walk us through the different use cases and some examples of how it actually works. Yeah. So for V1, the protocol was A, quite complex. So it worked game theoretically, but it wasn't optimized to be implemented on a blockchain. So there was a lot of transactions, which works out to be quite expensive. And then from a kind of complexity point of view, there was a lot of complexity. So it was difficult for users to understand and difficult for, I guess, anyone building on it to understand. But it was it was feasible, right? It, it worked in theory, but in practice, it was expensive in terms of transactions and too complex, you know, to be easy to adopt. And so the protocol got involved at each stage of the transactions in, in V1. In V2, it's an optimistic protocol, which means the protocol only gets involved when there's a problem. It's optimistic. It assumes everything's fine unless it's not, and then it gets involved. So it's kind of more like a, a donut, if you like, right? Things just pass straight through. It's only if they deviate and there's a problem that the protocol gets involved. So if I sort of talk through the protocol, what happens is a seller decides that they're going to offer a product or service, a physical product and service, and they will list that offer in the same way that you would on an e-commerce sort of platform, which will have an image and, you know, the obligations of both parties, so the, how much they want the payment amount is and what they'll deliver. And then that gets listed as an offer. And then what happens is a buyer, if they like that offer, they will come and they will commit funds that get escrowed. And once you commit those funds, as a buyer, you receive a redeemable NFT. And that NFT is like an IOU, but instead of just being a piece of paper, it's kind of, you know, it's got structure and it's, you know, kind of programmed to have certain protections. And so once you've got this, this redeemable NFT as the buyer, you can either redeem it, obviously, but you can also do a lot of the things that, you know, that you can do with other NFTs. So you could trade it, 
you know, flip it on a secondary market, you could gift it, you could transfer it, you could hold it, you know, where it's like a bond for like, say, that's some rare whiskey or something or so it does all these things. And then finally, it's going to come, you know, get to the point where what someone buys it and redeems it. Once someone redeems it, then there's a process that, that goes through where the details are exchanged. And if it's a happy path, the seller will deliver to the buyer. And then the buyer will either say, yeah, hey, I, I received the item, the seller gets paid, or the buyer's opportunity to dispute or complain kind of expires and then the seller gets paid. And so that's the, you know, it's pretty, pretty simple, right? But that's the, the optimistic path. But outside of that path, you know, if there are any issues or complaints on the behalf of the buyer, then what happens is that, that you know, the buyer can raise initially the, what we call like a mutual resolution dispute where the protocol just works to enable buyer and seller to communicate and attempt to reach a mutual resolution. And if they do, and, you know, you've got quite a, a specific sort of contract that's embedded in the NFT that makes it very, very clear on the obligations of both parties, which helps. But if both parties agree, then they will agree to, a you know, a splitting of this pot and that the protocol will then just, in, you know, execute that outcome. If both parties disagree and that they fail to agree there, then the protocol can escalate to an external dispute resolver that could be, you know, fully decentralized, like, you know, Kleros or Aragon Court, which is, you know, very decentralized, but expensive, particularly for commerce. Or it could just be a trusted party. I mean, if it's a trusted seller, you know, so if it's, for example, it's like a Adidas or someone, then, you know, you'd be probably be perfectly happy to have the seller do their own disputes because you trust them. But if you were, I don't know, playing a game in Fortnite and someone offered you some sort of physical replica gun or whatever, you know, or like flaming sword or, or some, you know, or some physical asset and you had no way of identifying whether you could trust that person or if it was an unknown, you know, there's lots of cases of, you know, these sort of NFT creators offering physical components, to, you know, like, and they never get delivered, right? And so in that case, Boson provides these assurances that either you get the, the buyer gets the item or their money back. What problem does this solve for the e-commerce company, like somebody like Adidas? Like, how is this different from what they currently do and, and how is it better? If you look at what's happening, you know, with, Brands like Nike and Adidas, you know, sort of entering this whole kind of Web3 space. These sort of NFTs are, well, you know, first of all, they're, they're kind of what we call provable, right? So they are hard property assets like Bitcoin. They are not like little IOUs that, so if you hold one of these, you have protection from rug pull, right? That's the first thing. They're like hard assets that can then be used as collateral and fit within the whole of Web3 and enable this, you know, you do all the things that you can do with, you know, hard assets within Web3. And they're also programmable. You know, we recently had a big article written by Professor Jason Potts, who's like the world's number one blockchain economist, and actually the World Economic Forum sort of published it, which is what happens when all of the world's physical assets 
are listed on blockchains in a way that's kind of like provable, right? It's not just like this, ah, you know, here this is listed, but you've got to trust that you'll actually get the deliverable. If they're in a provable way and, and everything is programmable, right? You, you end up having the ability, you know, you have like a programmable economy. So you can move goods and services around with this high degree of confidence. It's not like, oh, fingers crossed, they're going to honor this, right? And so you've got this high degree of confidence and you can program it. So the whole economy moves from being, okay, we've, we've got a digital economy, but it's still pretty dumb. You know, it's still like, let me send you some money. Fingers crossed you'll get it. Let me send you that, you know. But once these things, assets are kind of fully provable, everybody can rely on them then and programmable, you can basically program the economy, right? It becomes a completely new beast. I'm curious, like what you think is the pain point for the merchant, like the e-commerce giant, like, cause they're using this to sell stuff at the end of the day, right? What pain points do they have that we're solving for with this tech? There's two parts of it. One is the, the opportunity. So the opportunity there is to be able to go and sell products and services everywhere right? You can sell them on your own website. You can sell them within the metaverse. You can sell them on NFT marketplaces. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about composability, right? So this idea for people who aren't familiar that like, because it lives on chain and it's using open source software on the back end, at least it becomes a lot more composable than the current web is, right? The current web feels composable to a lot of people, but is using API application programming interfaces to make that happen. And those are all permissioned, right? Whereas this is something that's like, hey, by its nature, the individual consumer owns this asset. That is a voucher for a physical good in this example that we've been going through. But it's something that can be sold and bought and traded kind of anywhere without the need for special permissions or tooling and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly that. So, you know, if you think about e-commerce at the moment... The transactions themselves are dumb, right? They can't discriminate or apply any rules or anything. But the channel is sort of smart. So I'm going to go and sell this through Amazon or I sell this through this website. That's going to apply rules and, you know, decide who can apply, what the price is. All of that is imposed on the transaction. It's not contained within the transaction. But within Web3, you can program those rules so we can, you know, program who can go through, you know, the transaction program, the product, everything, which means you can sell everywhere. You can plug this into all these metaverses, websites, all of this different stuff. And the, the rules of the transaction are encoded within the transaction. And then with, with Boson, what you can then do as a seller is you can then plug this like redemption point into your own website. So you're kind of selling everywhere and then redeeming back on your own site and really turning your website into like a Web3 kind of community hub. You know, it's a very different paradigm to kind of just selling off of a flat website or even giving all of your customers to a marketplace that's kind of then got all, you know, kind of... I think another really good example of what's possible, I just thought of this, but like... Right now, we all get targeted with ads, right? And it follows us all over the internet. And number one, cookies are going away. So you're not going to be able to do this kind of targeting. But in the future, anywhere, not in the same manner. The commerce can kind of follow the consumer all over the internet, right? So I can buy an NFT on any website that could be served to me as an ad. And because my wallet goes with me in the browser, 
I can just like buy it. I can just pay for it. I mean, and also you can, there are like ways to use credit card and stuff like that, but you can do interfaces that are a lot different where the merchant side of things is still just going through the protocol. For people who maybe haven't built like a website or an e-commerce site before, you might not realize that like typically that the site itself is vertically integrated and it's kind of walled off. So you can't, you can only buy and sell on that site. And so this way you can kind of, because it's a protocol and it's open source and whatnot, you can kind of carry that functionality with you to any other application or experience. And that is a big deal that broadens the ability to like where the funnel can close. Like, you know, an ad is typically top of funnel, right? It's like building awareness for the customer, but now it can be like the conversion point. That's interesting. Yeah. And then you bring all those customers back to your own domain to do the redemption and build community experiences and stuff. But yeah, there's kind of one part of what we do, which is kind of quite pushing the envelope, using all this tech, cutting edge stuff. But where the market is in that moment is that it's kind of like a lot of brands are like, they see what the likes of Nike do and they're like, okay, we'd like to do something like this. And so where we're at at the moment is, I mean, we've just gone to this kind of open access. So kind of doors are open now for anyone, but we are educating brands and kind of inspiring them in terms of what they can do. And then just providing a set of really easy to use and, and, you know, kind of pretty low cost because we're, we're a protocol. We're not like, you know, a, some sort of kind of web three agency that's just trying to maximize, you know, you know, and so just helping brands take a step into web three in a kind of easy and cost effective way. And that's where we are with the market. We're not really talking about, you know, the fact that under, underneath boson is all of this sort of deep tech that will unravel, you know, there's kind of digital support, there's support for perpetual royalties on physicals, but the market's not yet there yet. There's lots of adoption happening in quite a simple way. So everything is about simplicity, education, and just kind of, you know, getting people to experiment. But obviously it's great the fact that, you know, all of this kind of smart contracts and tech is built to do a whole lot more. I know the doors just kind of opened for you guys on the public launch, but can you weigh in a little bit on what you're seeing in the market as far as brands and enterprises jumping into the space? Like I know late last year with FTX and like a bunch of the turmoil in, in crypto, there was definitely a pullback. I felt it at least. What are you seeing today? Like what's it look like for the timeline of adoption? You know, when are we going to start seeing real major like adoption of some of these brands in a more consistent manner? What happened prior to all that FDX with the Metaverse and Web3 is that we saw a big ramp up in awareness. So lots of brands, most brands have got a position on a Web3 strategy. It's just that at the moment we've had a pullback, not just on in the crypto prices in general, but, you know, activity in the NFT space, etc. You know, brands are now, they are doing initiatives and developing their strategy, etc. But the the investment is kind of linked to what they expect to get in ROI. But for sure, as we see the next kind of bull run emerge and, and a resurgence, there, you know, it's very different to last time where now the awareness is there and the readiness to kind of jump on bandwagons is, is there. You know, lots of brands are, are doing, doing stuff and see this as like another channel, another interface, another, the next iteration of, of the web. So, trying to build that capability and time their sort of, you know, proper entry into the space. Yeah. 
Do you have any thoughts just on how AI fits into all this from the commerce standpoint with blockchain technology? Like, is there a connection point there that you think is potentially important? Absolutely. When you're sort of automating solutions like this, you've got a number of tools at your disposal. I mean, with Boson, we use, you know, obviously kind of protocol design, some game theory, but plugging AI in can also sort of automate curation in terms of ensuring that we've got you've got legitimate products. It can it can make assessments of the kind of credit worthiness. It can support in setting up sellers and stuff and, and stuff like that. And it, it can support in terms of sort of intelligent agents that can go and and, and plug in between. Well, I think the credit worthiness example is really interesting, right? Like maybe some of this NFT comes with financing associated with it, right? And so you have to put a down payment, like buying a house, for example. I don't know if that will happen in this way that we're talking about, but maybe a car might or something. Or, you know, people finance even electronics. I mean, you see this online, it looks like a thousand dollar piece of you know equipment that that they might finance. And yeah, I mean, the AI could run the credit scores on the background. Like, you know, normally human is pushing buttons to do that and then like making an assessment based on a report that comes back. But that could all be automated. Yeah, and at near zero cost. So with with Boson, you've got the option of, you know, buyer and seller, you know, have got the option of sort of having like deposits that the buyer or the seller might have to contribute. So if it's a known seller, they won't need a deposit. But if it's a completely unknown seller, as a buyer, you might be more comfortable if the seller has got some skin in the game, like, you know, so that you know that it's likely that you're going to get the item. Although you'd always get your money back, you don't want to lock up funds if it's kind of a spam sale type thing. And so that's one thing we use deposits. And likewise, you know, sellers can ask buyers for a non-refundable deposit so that if you go and buy this NFT and then you want to cancel out of it, that there's a penalty for the buyer to, you know. Now, those deposits are there to prevent, you know, kind of this kind of negative behavior. But if AI can analyze the sort of, you know, be like a proxy for reputation and analyze the behaviors of these addresses, it can say, oh, there's a high confidence that this is an address that regularly buys X, Y, and Z and isn't is an honest actor. Therefore, I would suggest you don't really need to ask this buyer for a deposit or this seller is, you know, we score at 99%. They're not offering a deposit. Yeah, I think those are the sort of, it's an extra tool in the toolkit of protocol design, game theory, reputation, identity, et cetera. Got it. The next bull run, you know, you think adoption is going to pick up. What do you think some of the common use cases are going to be from Boson Protocol standpoint? Like, do you have specific markets where you think you'll see more traction than others for using the protocol? Yeah, for sure. I mean, what we've seen sort of hitherto has been, a, I think, a dipping the toe in the water. I mean, awareness has increased, but really what we're seeing is like, you know, physical NFTs that have been issued on quite a trusted basis where, oh, here's an NFT. If you hold that, you can have the item. But lots of cases of rug pulls where people don't actually get the item. And also... The thing about an NFT is it's supposed to give you this kind of strong and credible guarantee that you've got the underlying asset. There's not much point even using a Web3 format if, you know, it's just like a digital voucher, right, you know, for for a physical. So I I think what we're seeing 
is adoption, but in quite a superficial way, a bit like in the first web where travel agents would, you know, set up a, a brochure page saying, if you'd like to book travel, you know, call this number and come into our high street and book an appointment. You could, you know, fast forward five, 10 years and there were no high street travel agents left. It was just replaced by web technology. And so I think what we're going to see is this kind of continued adoption, but also a maturing of where instead of sort of superficial Web3 solutions, we're going to see the full power of like decentralized commerce where, yeah, you have these kind of decentralized Web3 trust guarantees on your commercial exchanges and it just all gets kind of automated. And that's the sort of vision that Professor Potts was talking about of, you know, if I send you an SMS or I send you an email or I send, you know, I send you a Bitcoin, it's all just handled by a protocol. There's no intermediaries taking a slice or permissioning. Yeah. And likewise, that you know, commerce can equally be handled like that. And why would you need an intermediary type thing? I think that's kind of the, the next stage of adoption is a maturation in terms of understanding actually what benefits these technologies bring. You know, you can just eliminate like you could eliminate high street travel agents, you can just eliminate actors in the value chain and just, you know, ping physical assets around with complete security using a protocol like Boson. I always ask this at the top of the show, but what, what have I not asked you that I should have asked? What's the state of sort of decentralized commerce and Web3 commerce right now is a good one. I see it as a kind of series of these like cycles that are stacked on top of each other. One of them is, you know, the whole crypto space. You know, I think we're at the end of a winter. So that sort of overall depresses the whole, the whole state. But we've also got players like Amazon coming in, you know, eBay with NFTs again, NFTs for physicals, slightly pointless to have an NFT for a physical that's attached to a trusted party. You may as well. I mean, that's what I did at Priority Pass. I issued trusted digital vouchers doesn't matter whether they're nft if you have to trust an intermediary but what the likes of amazon can do is they can raise public awareness in a similar way that facebook meta did for the metaverse right i mean you had decentralized projects like the sandbox and decentraland you know that massively benefited from the public awareness that was driven by Meta. And so, but, you know, I don't think the value accrues to the likes of Meta once people realize what can be achieved in a space, whether it's Metaverse or Decentralized Web3 Commerce. They then kind of look to get the full, the full kind of suite of benefits. And, you know, with decentralization stuff, and it's that the users can get to share in the value they create, right? They don't need to give up large slices of value to, to sort of intermediaries. We are at the point where decentralized commerce, Web3 commerce, is going to become this kind of new zeitgeist and hopefully will become the zeitgeist timed with this sort of next, next bull market, which I think we're going to be seeing in the second half of this year. Well, I hope that's true and I can't wait to see it play out. Thanks so much for being on the show. Pleasure. Thanks, Alex. You just heard the Index Podcast with your host, Alex Kahaya. If you enjoyed this episode, please give the show a five-star rating and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or your favorite streaming platform. New episodes available every other Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in.